This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for NPR and the following message come from NYU Stern. Their executive MBA program provides the support you need to take that next great leap. Classes held one Friday, Saturday, Sunday a month in downtown D.C. Search NYU Stern EMBA in D.C. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boudou of Axios, and it's the first news roundup of 2024. So are you ready for this? We are the United States of America. There is nothing beyond our capacity when we act together. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. Or this. We are Americans, and Americans kneel to God and God alone. And it is time to start talking about greatness for our country again. Of course, it might not be either. There's a lot we don't know about 2024, but there's a lot we do know about the first week of what's going to be a very, very busy 12 months. Let's introduce our panel. Nancy Cook is a senior national political correspondent for Bloomberg News. My colleague Alex Thompson, national political correspondent for Axios. And Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at HuffPost. Let's start in court. Former President Trump's legal team has been busy. On Tuesday, attorneys for the Republican presidential frontrunner asked a judge to reverse an attempt by Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows to keep his name off the state's primary ballot. On Wednesday, Trump appealed a similar ruling from Colorado to the Supreme Court. Nancy, there is so much to break down here. Can we start with what the arguments are being put forward by Trump's legal team that the 14th Amendment is not a reason for removing removing the former president from the primary ballot? Of course. And thanks for having me and Happy New Year. So basically, I, I talked to Trump's, uh, several of his aides, a bunch this week because there's so much going on on the legal front. And their argument is really that, uh, you know, with the 14th Amendment, that this is not applicable to the president, to the former president. They're saying that he, this is not something that pertains to him. Um, also, a big part of the argument is that you know, voters should decide he should be afforded due process, not the courts. And they're really trying to sweep this up into a larger narrative that they've tried to put on all of the legal cases, which is that this is a political ploy on the part of Joe Biden and Democrats to keep Trump off the ballot because he's rising in the polls. Of course, there's no evidence of that. But that is really sort of how they're trying to play this politically as well. And the deadline for certifying Colorado's primary ballot is today. The state Supreme Court stayed their ruling until yesterday in expectation of an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. That happened on Wednesday, though the high court hasn't weighed in. Nancy, what does this mean for whether or not we know if this is if Trump's going to actually end up on the ballot? 
Well, so there is um, a, like a little bit of a time crunch. As you said, the Trump people do think that the Supreme Court will take this up. They're, they feel confident about that. Um, but, you know, there definitely is this uh, deadline for them to figure out whether or not he will be on the ballot there. And, and I think that that is really, you know, pushing a lot of these legal fights this week. And of course, you have to remember that the whole 14th Amendment uh, and, and the question of whether or not if you incited an insurrection, you can be on the ballot, you know, comes against the three-year anniversary of January 6th, which is happening tomorrow. And both sides are really, you know, the Democrats are really trying to capitalize on this moment politically as well to call attention to what happened three years ago on Capitol Hill. Alex, let's focus on what's at stake here in the context of this being an election year and the power Donald Trump has over his party. How big of a moment is this going to be for the justices on the Supreme Court? Well, it's going to be a big moment, but I think it's also important to realize that this is not going to be an isolated moment. There are currently up to six potential cases that will impact Donald Trump that the court could end up taking up this year alone. So this is not an isolated case, and every single decision that they make is going to have backlash one way or another, given what you just talked about, which is that Donald Trump has an incredible hold in his party. The court is a 6-3 majority. So if they rule in Trump's favor, there's going to, you know, unless it's sort of a 9-0 decision, there's going to be backlash from the left. And even if it's a 9-0 decision, there's going to be backlash from the left. And every single time one of these decisions come up, not just Donald Trump's freedom and his political chances and the elections on the line, but also you know the status and the standing of the Supreme Court in the public imagination is also on the line too. So it's going to be a messy legalistic year. Arthur, on Alex's note there, can you we talked about the nine justices. Can you remind us why Clarence Thomas is under pressure to recuse himself from this? Democrats want Clarence Thomas to recuse himself because his wife was such a cheerleader for the efforts to overturn the election after uh, November 2020. And he has recused himself from one case where he was directly implicated in emails by a Trump attorney named John Eastman. But he hasn't from others. And I, and I don't expect that he will in this one. And I, I think the Supreme Court will, you know, since they're under a time crunch, probably try to find an escape hatch from this case rather than rule on on whether um, Trump engaged in insurrection, which is the big question. They'll say, well, states can't just kick someone off the ballot. It, it, it should take an act of Congress for this mechanism to be used. And uh, they'll cite the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which says Congress can enforce any provisions of this. So I, I think they'll, they'll try to weasel out of making a big, big case. This week, new reporting from the New York Times suggests the former president is anxious about the ballot decision expected from the Supreme Court. One of his former attorneys, Alina Haba, says Donald Trump made no secret of these concerns. Um, she spoke to Fox News on Wednesday. Republicans are conservative. They get nervous. They unfortunately are sometimes shy away from being pro-Trump because they feel that even if the law's on our side, uh, they may appear to be swayed. So they're trying so hard to look neutral that sometimes they make the wrong call. Alex, can you help us unpack that argument? To what extent might a conservative majority on the Supreme Court work against the former president and the appeals that are being lodged by his legal team? Donald Trump would much rather have a 6-3 majority than a 6-3 Dem like Democratic appointed judge majority. So, you know, this is a, a little bit of a classic, you know, Trump working the refs 
um, uh, sort of scenario because also you you saw I think later in that same interview or it was a different interview she has been really working the circuit lately. Lately, she also you know noted you know that she thought uh, Justice Kavanaugh would really come through uh, for the president because the president you know fought so hard for his confirmation when a lot of people you know when his confirmation was in danger. So. Um, you know, I think this idea that, uh, you know, an actual 6-3 majority, uh, you know, conservative majority, many of whom Trump appointed, uh, actually hurts him is a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a little a little too clever by half and, and a way of sort of, um, you know, trying to work the refs to give justices, I guess, like a permission structure to uh, to rule in Trump's favor, but I, I'm not sure it will matter that much. You can you can really hear Donald Trump sweating in that commentary by his attorney. Like they're, I'm sure they're confident they'll win, but they're a little worried because he did he did start that riot. The parsing of language in the act of leading insurrection by Trump is just becoming mindless. Roll the tape. Everyone saw the attempted insurrection, coup, killing of police, hang Pence live from inside the Capitol. There were extensive investigations and witnesses by Republicans and Democrats, people inside the Trump administration, and firsthand accounts. Again, uh, thanks for that comment, Rob. You can also email us. Arthur, let me ask you just a broader question. Maine Secretary of State Shana Bellows is a Democrat has been attacked for what some say is a decision based on her politics, not the law. Election administration should be apolitical. Are we seeing partisanship creep into election administration? Well, inevitably, it looks that way if there's a Democrat and they're making a decision that's not good for a Republican. But this is just the the problem that Donald Trump has put on everyone's plate. You you uh, try to steal the 2020 election and you engage in activities that could well meet the definition of insurrection as as it's mentioned under the 14th Amendment. And all of a sudden, we all actually have to contend with this. Like like our legal analyst uh, said in the clip we heard earlier, this is a legitimate question. Um, And they they actually would have to argue why that wasn't an insurrection when it was a uh, an obviously incited riot by the president as part of a broader attempt to overthrow a lawful election. So it, it inevitably, it, it's, it looks partisan. It makes people sound crazy when we throw words around like insurrection and coup, but that's what he did. Arthur, are we just going to basically all of – do you expect the entire country is just going to have to bone up on all of these things and be prepared for dealing with all of these legal cases for the rest of the year? Oh, my God, yes. We're boning up. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that story. You can also keep up with the latest by tuning into your local NPR station and visiting NPR.org. We'll be back with more of the Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. We're not entirely done with the appeals, speaking of the former president. On Thursday, Trump's lawyers filed a motion arguing that special counsel Jack Smith should be held in contempt of court. They argued prosecutors had taken steps to advance the 2020 election interference case against their client in violation of a judge's order last month that temporarily put the case on hold. Nancy, why is Trump's legal team arguing that special counsel Jack Smith should be held in contempt of court? Well, really what they're trying to do is, you know, as we've talked about before, really muddy the waters. And so, you know, they are really trying to, you know, argue everything that that Jack Smith said Trump's doing, Jack Smith has done himself. They're doing the same with Biden. You know, they're, they're trying to say Biden is corrupt. This is just another um, attempt of them to really try to flip the script on the people that are accusing them of something, they accuse them back. Um, and, and that has really been the strategy moving forward to kind of make it seem like, oh, well, I did this. Potentially the other side also did this. You know, everybody's sort of in this uh, mess together and, and you can't really hold anyone responsible. That has really been uh, Trump's playbook again and again. And I just want to point out, you know, he faces a myriad of legal challenges during this election cycle, which Alex laid out earlier. But, you know, his his team has really faced, you know, a bunch of legal challenges Back, dating back to 2016, the Russia investigation to impeachment challenges. So I would say that they have definitely developed sort of a playbook of how they respond politically to all of these different threats. And this is something that they've really been honing over the last year. Yeah, and, and this is the immunity question from the uh, complaint against Trump from Jack Smith for trying to overthrow the election and start the riot at the Capitol. And it's been stayed in the district court pending the Supreme Court appeal, and then the Supreme Court said no, and now it's at an, a lower federal appeals court. And because it was stayed in the lower court, the, the uh, Trump legal team is saying Jack Smith uh, violated the stay by filing these these discovery motions. And, and this they're, they're just throwing stuff on the pile that could delay this whole case even more than they're already hoping to delay it. Eric just asked, I'm enjoying the conversation about the 14th Amendment and eligibility of being on the ballot, but doesn't the Constitution clarify that voting is delegated to the states? Is there a possibility the Supreme Court doesn't take the case based on this? Arthur? I think that the Supreme Court would want to, I mean, they'll have to take the case because this is going on in more than just Colorado and Maine. And it's it's a, a constitutional question that's never been settled. It's never been at the Supreme Court. So they have to. And they have to do it quickly, even though they hate having to get involved in big stuff on short notice. And I think they'll look for the, the, the least substantive reason to say, go away uh, and let Trump be on the ballot. They'll look at the Section 5, perhaps, of, of the 14th Amendment, which says it takes an act of con- – you know, Congress can enforce this. And in this case, Congress hasn't said anything it's just been uh, acted on by states. We also got this email from Dave saying, I believe Trump is guilty of inciting the insurrection and attempted to corrupt the vote in Georgia and Michigan. However, taking the choice away from voters will not shut him up. Only a defeat in November will shut him up, maybe. Pulling him out of the ballot will only fuel his, quote, martyr syndrome. 
Alex, what are uh, political uh, analysts saying about that in terms of the idea that what is the analysis? What are people saying? You know, the the last email that you read, it's interesting because, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom in California has basically made this same argument that if you actually want to beat Trump, if you want to beat the quote unquote MAGA movement, you have to do so at the ballot box. And that if if anything, you know, I had a lot of Republican consultants as soon as that first Colorado Supreme Court decision was made, um, several Republican consultants said to me, they just made Trump the nominee because Trump has managed to make you know the ninety one felony counts um, you know a political win for him in the GOP primary because you know martyrdom is like a powerful you know captivating narrative and and currently he he has it and you know to add to a little bit of what Nancy and Arthur were saying about you know all, all you know all these court cases you know it. Going into this election year is the first time when I, I wish I'd listened to my mom and gone to law school. And if you have lawyers in your life, I would keep them close this entire election season because <laughs> there's going to be appeal after appeal after appeal. And there's going to be breathless coverage on every single one, especially from us like political experts that are talking about the politics of it. But you know, some things are important politically and not important legally and vice versa. You know, one of the ones that's gotten the least attention is there's the Supreme Court is going to listen to an argument about uh, what a lot of the January 6th writers have been charged with, which is a, an obstruction uh, felony. Um, but that's one of the charges Trump's charged with, too. And the Supreme Court might rule that they are misinterpreting or over-interpreting the statute, and then you take one of the biggest felonies away from the case. So there's going to be uh, lots of ups and downs, lots of it in the courtroom. So uh, uh, either study up or, uh, or get a lawyer friend. Uh, I want to just shout out your mom, Alex, and remind <laughs> I'll just <laughs> highlight again what your mom said. Uh, Speaking of the primaries, time is running out for Republican presidential candidates as we head toward the Iowa caucuses. GOP hopefuls have been holding a marathon of campaign events in both Iowa and New Hampshire with less than two weeks to go before voting starts. But as always, the shadow of former President Donald Trump looms large. I don't like the discourse that we have. I don't like the chaos and the insanity we feel like we're in. I don't like the rhetoric he gives. Character does matter. And how we treat people does matter. That was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in Iowa this week. Nancy, Republicans have spent more than $100 million on ads in Iowa. Trump has long held the lead in polls. So how is this race really shaping up here in the caucuses? Well, Trump is still really the dominant figure in Iowa, even though Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have spent much more time on the ground there. There was a a very prominent Des Moines Register poll from a few weeks ago that got a ton of attention within the Republican Party because, you know, it had Trump with support of over 50 percent. He, uh, you know, really still has dominated Iowa. I, I, the polls have shown Nikki Haley creeping up till second, but there's still a huge margin between the way he is polling and the way the second place people are polling. Um, and so what I'll be looking for in Iowa is, you know, does Trump win or have the polls been correct? How much of that support does he get if he gets above 50%? I think that that's pretty meaningful because usually his support in the Republican base is more like 30%. And then how big of a mar- you know, how big of a margin does he win by? And then who comes in second? I think it's extremely likely given 
the way that Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor's campaign has really sputtered out, that Nikki Haley comes in second. And and that will be incredibly interesting because, uh, you know, she's just had a remarkable rise uh, over the fall, given her debate performances and a bunch of donor money she's gotten. And I think the question is, you know, is there some sort of long shot scenario where she really takes on Trump? Or does he really remain the dominant figure through these early primary uh, states and caucuses like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina? Arthur, what are you watching as we head toward the Iowa caucus and then voting in New Hampshire later this month? The clip of Nikki Haley that we just heard is interesting. It reflects her increasing willingness to attack Trump, not in the most forthright language, but she said last night, for instance, that he, he creates chaos and that we wouldn't survive another Trump presidency uh, owing to the chaos that he he creates. So that's remarkable. And it coincides with her surge in the polls, uh, in some polls, even overtaking Ron DeSantis. So uh, th- this is this is new, I would say. This is not the same exact dynamic that we've been, uh, you know, boringly watching for the past several months. Alex, what are you watching for? I'm actually very interested to see next week on the 10th, there are two events. So CNN announced a long time ago that there was going to be, you know, a final Iowa debate. Um, but they made the qualifications such that there are only going to be two people on the stage. And it is going to be Ron DeSantis's last chance, really, given what Nancy and Arthur have talked about, about Nikki Haley's rise. It's really Ron DeSantis's last chance to sort of stem that. And it's also Nikki Haley's chance to potentially quash uh, Ron DeSantis in Iowa. Um, at the same time, the exact same moment, Fox News is going to do a town hall uh, with Donald Trump, with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. And I'm going to be curious to see what the ratings difference is because he's he's clearly bigfooting um, CNN show. And I'm just also curious how how that goes. And the second thing about this is with Nikki Haley's rise, there is actually a chance that she has uh, been herself, like that, that she actually has caused herself harm. Because if Ron DeSantis sputters out in Iowa with a third or third place finish and decides to drop out, the current polling and data shows that a lot of his uh, voters would go to Trump, not to Nikki Haley. And it could actually end up strengthening Trump if he drops out too early. Um, so I'm very curious to see how that dynamic plays out. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden is in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania today for his first campaign event of 2024. Biden's expected to focus on the future of democracy. This event takes place the day before the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Alex, can I just ask you, in 2020, Biden talked a lot about the battle for the soul of the country. How is is this a different message? No, it's the exact same message. But instead of talking about Charlottesville, which was at the center of his announcement video and sort of his, you know, uh, cause uh, for for, you know, getting back in the fight at his age, you know, that this was an existential moment, not just for. Uh, you know, for Democrats or Republicans, but for what America stood for. And um, he basically is taking that exact Charlottesville lens and now applying it to January 6th. And that is why you're going to see him uh, you know, th- today. He is uh, he on Friday. He is going to Valley Forge um, the day before Jan- the third anniversary of January 6th. Originally was planned for January 6th. And you're going to hear him talk about 
that day. He's also going to go to South Carolina next Monday uh, to the Mother Emanuel Church, where there was a racist massacre in 2015 that left nine people dead. He's also going to try to connect what happened on January 6th to that. And I, I think, you know, the, the last six months, the Biden campaign has been really focused on bragging about all the great things that Joe Biden has done. And uh, the polling hasn't really moved. And now what you are seeing is a shift that I would expect to happen throughout the say the same throughout this election, which is that this is not just about Joe Biden, that this is about keeping Donald Trump and, and his forces at bay. Let's move to Congress. On Wednesday, House Speaker Mike Johnson led more than 60 House Republicans to the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Johnson was there to push for tougher immigration restrictions. One thing is absolutely clear. America is at a breaking point with record levels of illegal immigration. And today, we got a firsthand look at the damage and the chaos the border catastrophe is causing in all of our communities. The situation here and across the country is truly unconscionable. We would describe it as both heartbreaking and infuriating. Our communities are overrun. We have local resources that are being strapped. We have lethal drugs that are pouring into our country at record levels. And it's in less than three years that President Biden took office that this has happened. Arthur, Speaker Johnson also said, quote, if President Biden wants a supplemental spending bill focused on national security, it better begin by defending America's national security. So what's at the heart of this trip then? Well, this is Republicans' top message. They've been extremely focused on the border and immigration. And so they are basically amplifying their own message and using video because at Eagle Pass, Texas, you, you can see the images of hundreds of people crossing the river and, and uh, you know, wearing those silvery blankets trying to keep warm. And it, and it is, uh, you know, really bad stuff. Uh, but it's very complicated with what's happening policy-wise in Washington. It's uh, the, the president suggested that, that Congress could do some extra border funding and immigration policy funding as part of the Ukraine and Israel supplemental spending package. And now Johnson's talking about that, but also he was with a contention of far-right Republicans who said, you do our restrictive immigration bill or we'll shut down the government. Which isn't – that Congress needs to come together in the next few weeks to avert another government shutdown. Right. The, the, the January 19th is the first deadline and we have a staggered shutdown this time with the, the rest of it uh, partially closing early in February. And so now Israel, Ukraine and just – Basic government operations are all one huge thing. And uh, Mike Johnson has to play to the right of his of his conference in order to remain speaker. So it's all the drama of last year wrapped up into one thing, and the stakes are high. It's, it's government shutdown. It's foreign policy. It's domestic policy. It sounds like Republicans may be a little less focused on you know, aggregate – Uh, domestic spending levels this time than they have in the past, and it'll be more about immigration. Nancy, I just want to quickly ask you about the political implications of a government shutdown in an election year. 
Yeah, I think that both sides will try to blame the other. The the White House is definitely going to try to blame this on Republicans who, you know, as we've seen time and time again, have had a very difficult time agreeing amongst themselves on what they will or won't support in terms of spending in Congress. That's how Mike Johnson ended up with the job in some roundabout way. And so I, I think that, you know, both sides will try to use this to their advantage. Republicans to score points on government spending, Democrats to score points on what they see as Republicans' dysfunction. We're going to head to a quick break, but we'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're made in Made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Project Lead the Way. Today's world is driven by STEM. At Project Lead the Way, they believe learning by doing helps every student in every grade be STEM successful. Learn more at pltw.org NPR. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of Internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move to education news. On Tuesday, Harvard University President Claudine Gay resigned after just six months in the role. Her resignation comes a month after her highly criticized congressional testimony about how Harvard and other universities are responding to anti-Semitism on campuses since the October 7th attacks on Israel by Hamas. In a letter to the Harvard community, Gay said that plagiarism allegations also led to her resignation. Nancy... Liz McGill, the former president of UPenn, also resigned in the week following the hearings after pressure from legislators and the university community. How surprising was Gay's resignation? It wasn't that surprising. I mean, she just faced, you know, like McGill, uh, her confirmation hearing didn't go great. She stumbled um, in in sort of failing to condemn anti-Semitism, you know, on campuses and in a fulsome way. That really irritated, you know, a bunch of people and obviously really fired up the Republican base. And then there was all of these uh, charges of plagiarism, uh, you know, sh- all of these instances that that critics found where she had plagiarized in her work. And it just became the sort of drip, drip narrative of, you know, all, like every day there was a few instances of plagiarism uncovered and, um, you know, she just did not, could not maintain the support of the university community, but also the, you know, the board of directors at Harvard, it just became like this never ending story. And as we know, in politics, you know, once you become the target and sort of the never ending story, you know, institutions usually want to make a change at that point. And, and I will say, 
This has really emboldened Republicans who, you know, called that hearing two out of the three university presidents who testified at that hearing. And at least Representative Elise Stefanik of New York asked those questions. They have now resigned. You know, Elise Stefanik posted on Twitter the other day, like, you know, two down, one more to go. I mean, this is really sort of a, a challenge, I think, at the Republican Party level to, to kind of rid themselves of these university presidents who they view as problematic on a bunch of issues. And so in an op-ed for the New York Times that was published a day after she resigned, Gay wrote, quote, she fell into a well-laid trap. She's referring, uh, Nancy, to what you were talking about at last month's congressional hearing. Arthur, can you explain a little bit more about um, what she, Gay is saying about that this was a trap? To, and also sort of to illuminate what Nancy was talking about? Uh, she, she, uh, Claudine Gay is trying to make an excuse for her performance. She was asked a simple question, you know, is is calling for for genocide against Jews, you know, hate speech? Is that bullying under your policy? And she just wouldn't – she wouldn't say yes. It wasn't a hard question. Um, but it, it is true that she has been targeted uh, b- because uh, many on the right are – Annoyed by uh, the role that elite universities play in public discourse, and uh, they did go after her for uh, you know looking for plagiarism in her in her uh, published work as a result of that hearing, and she, she you know she there was blood in the water basically, um, but they did find it. I mean, you if you look at the Washington Free Beacons analysis of of the papers where they show the highlighted text that was copied, um, it's clear that she was stealing sentences. Um, and she, in her op-ed, she's trying to have it both ways, say that, uh, you know, I, I I made mistakes, but also I am a victim of, of this attack. And, and in a way, that that is true, but uh, it's not the, not the uh, most fulsome uh, acceptance of responsibility for what she herself did. One other note to this story, Business Insider revealed Thursday that Neri Oxman, wife of prominent Harvard donor Bill Ackman, also had a has a pattern of plagiarism herself. Uh, this is of note because Ackman was a leader of the charge against gay. <laughs> it appears to be New Year, new indictment for Senator Bob Menendez, a New Jersey Democrat. According to the latest charges, federal prosecutors are now accusing Menendez of accepting bribes in connection with the Qatari government. Alex, what is this latest indictment? Tell us about the evidence that's stacking up against Senator Menendez. Uh, well, it says that uh, this is not good for his reelection pro- prospects <laughs> or or his future freedom, uh, for that matter. I mean, this is the superseding indictment on top of the first one, talking about a- accepting, you know, watches and, and race car tickets, um, you know, and talks of, of foreign corruption. And, you know, he already has two, um, you know, beyond the actual charges the, in the terms of politics – you know, he, he already has two very uh, formidable primary challengers in this race. Now, you know, like he did in the last time he was on trial, um, you know, he stayed in that race and, and he won. But uh, it, it is, uh, you know, a different. Is it different? Yeah. Uh, you, do you feel like it's different this time? Yes. I mean, you have both not just Representative a- Andy Kim, who is well liked and has, you know, a, a decent, uh, you know, profile in the state. 
um, and who's like a strong candidate. But you also have the governor's wife, the governor who, by the way, is loaded um, and can self-fund the the campaign. Um, She also got in the race. So when you have the governor's wife and a popular congressman both challenging you, um, it shows that there's blood in the water here. And this next this and that was on the first indictment. The second indictment only makes it worse. I think he's really pushing the strategy of not resigning to its absolute limit. Uh, I mean, we saw George Santos do that, and ultimately uh, his own party turned its back on him and expelled him, and Senate Democrats haven't, haven't been willing to go there yet, but this is untenable. And he, and he does have Democratic Senate colleagues who are saying he should resign and that they'd, that they'd be willing to expel him if he didn't. But he might, you know, he might go to, to prison anyway. Elsewhere in the world of high-powered influence, on Wednesday, unsealed documents revealed dozens of names as part of a new civil suit against Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell's already serving a 20-year prison sentence after being convicted of sex trafficking girls and other charges. She was an associate of disgraced power broker and financier Jeffrey Epstein. The names are as prominent as former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, as well as the UK's Prince Andrew. Being named in the suit does not mean these people are accused of wrongdoing. But given the prominence of some of those named, the civil trial will be closely scrutinized. At least as far as job numbers go, 2023 seems to have ended with a bang. Employers added 216,000 jobs last month, while unemployment held at 3.7 percent. Nancy, how are you interpreting these jobs numbers? The jobs numbers continue to be great. And, uh, you know, the jobs numbers are great. The stock market is also doing well. Um, It will be very interesting to see how, uh, you know, President Biden, how and if he and his White House can capitalize on, you know, the spate of good economic news. Americans have really felt very poor about the economy for the past year. And we've seen poll after poll show that they, you know, rate the economy poorly, even if they rate their own personal financial picture as fine. Um, there's really like a sense of gloom over the over the state of the economy, even though there are a ton of bright spots like, you know, the jobs numbers, the low unemployment rate, the stock market, as I said. And so I'll just be really curious to see, you know, what happens. And of course, the Fed may be, the Federal Reserve may cut interest rates later this year, which would also, you know, be some more good news for Biden. They've just had a very hard time capitalizing on that and, and sort of selling their economic message. Bidenomics has been, or the messaging of it has been a real flop. And so I will be looking to see, you know, if they can develop a coherent economic message that really actually resonates with Americans, you know, before November. I don't know, Nancy, I wanted to ask you how many people you think are thinking about whether or not we're achieving a soft landing. Like, do you think that matters to the everyday American? I I mean, I don't think that people talk in these Bloomberg-esque terms, you know, like soft (laughs) landing, um, you know, which people at Bloomberg talk about all the time, but I don't think normal Americans do. But I do think it does seem like we're going to avoid a recession this year. And, you know, uh, the Fed has basically, you know, inflation has started to come down. It seems like they have really tamed that. And then if they cut interest rates, that could really help people as they try to do things like, you know, buy a home. And and so, um, yeah, I'll just be curious to see how that shakes out because all of the economic signs are, are pretty good and really pointing in a good direction. All right, let's go to one final story before we get to Reporter's Notebook, and that's TikTok. Um, no, you would never find another girl like me. What is the North Sea? Did I need to know it existed? Is it my business? No. 
You might never be able to drink tequila again, is what headlines finna say if we don't get our act together. Because there would be no liquid tiger if it wasn't for bats. Okay, some moments from TikTok if you were not on it. A Montana law that would have banned TikTok this year is on hold. A federal judge issued an injunction, which means that for now, people in Montana will still be able to download the app without facing fines. Alex, what are the Montana Attorney General's concerns when it comes to TikTok? Can you remind us? That little montage made me feel so old because <laughs> I did not recognize anything uh, in there. So, um, but you and I'll me both, Alex. That, Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank goodness. So, but what I'll say is, you know, the Montana Attorney General is trying to ban the use of TikTok in the state because its parent company is uh, is based in and owned in China. And there's also been, you know, report. And there's two things. There's been reporting that. Um, the corporation China has access to some of the user data uh, of the TikTok U.S. company. Um, the other thing that's going on here is is part of the larger, you know, especially it's it's happening in both parties, but especially on the Republican side um, of if you know this anti-China backlash and and saying that TikTok is sort of a psyops tool or or just a tool in which the Chinese government you know can play with algorithms and and feed news to people through the app that can disrupt politics and you know recently they've been pointing out the fact that you know given TikTok's popularity and and uh, all over the world that there is you know uh, um, more pro Palestine um, or at least Palestine sympathetic content that's been at issue and really this is this is just a larger battle that's happening nationally over the app and and even this is happening on political campaigns you know I can tell you that the Biden campaign currently is debating this very issue of whether or not to even go on TikTok, despite it being the most popular app among a lot of young voters that they need. Um, but it's because of both the security concerns um, about the app uh, that the White House shares and also some of the politics about uh, when it comes to China. Uh, before we end here, let's get to quick reporter's notebook. And Alex, let me start with you because you were just talking about the White House. You have some new reporting out today on tension brewing over who's getting podium time at the White House. Yes. Yeah, so we're in a very unusual situation right now where in name there is one press secretary, but in practice there are two. And there's one for domestic policy and one for foreign policy. Now, Karine Jean-Pierre um, – you know the the is technically the press secretary, but she's increasingly been sharing, especially after October seventh, been sharing the podium with John Kirby, who is at the NSC, and there have been basically the tensions between the two of them have, have really started from from the get go. When you know uh, a lot of defenders and allies of Jean Pierre felt that bringing in Kirby as sort of this national security spokesperson. Uh, was was a bit offensive. Was essentially, uh, you know, telling the first black press secretary ever that they needed supervision. Um, and then Kirby has grown increasingly frustrated at at being like sort of kept, you know, with a hands distance. If you watch the press briefings, um, you know, over the last several months, um, you'll notice that when he's at the podium, even though he's there frequently, uh, Karine Jean Pierre selects which reporters are going to ask him questions. And my reporting has shown that privately this drives him nuts. And, uh, you know, she does it for other guests too. 
Um, but, uh, but he's there so often and he's been a spokesperson at the Pentagon twice in the State Department that it's part of just this growing sort of, you know, frustrating interpersonal dynamic that really is the result of what it was an unwieldy setup from, uh, Chief of Staff Ron Klain and Anita Dunn. Uh, senior advisor back in 2022. And um, I, I would keep an eye on it going forward. Okay. Some new reporting from Axios. Arthur, uh, a story you're watching? While we've been talking, Republicans just announced they'll make moves to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress because he wouldn't come for a private deposition last month. And this is part of the impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden. And that's the big story that I'll be following most closely in the coming months. Nancy, what about you? Is it the economy, the presidential election, or both? I'm really uh, super focused on the presidential election. I'm going to Iowa um, on Thursday. And I have a story out this morning with some colleagues just looking at the way Trump is really blending his you know, political strategy heading into 2024 with his legal strategy, you know, as we've talked about all these myriad of legal challenges he faces means he's going to be in the courtroom. And so there's a huge part of his campaign of thinking about how they can basically turn those courtroom appearances into political style events. Our thanks this week to Nancy Cook, senior national political correspondent for Bloomberg News, Alex Thompson, national political correspondent at Axios, and Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at the HuffPost. Thanks to you all. One more story before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup. Hear that? That's the sound of a 13-year-old in Oklahoma, Willie Gibson, playing the classic Nintendo game Tetris. Last month, he achieved something worthy of a reaction like this. Oh, oh, oh my God! In December, Willie became the first person known to defeat the 35-year-old game. At level 157, he reached the game's kill screen. That means it reached the limits of its programming and is no longer playable. And he did it in less than 39 minutes. Congratulations, Willie. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. Every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. By the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. Donate today at cancer.org. Let's turn now to the biggest headlines from around the world. It's been a grim start to 2024. Wars in Gaza, Sudan, and Ukraine, tensions on the rise in Lebanon, Mali, and Myanmar. But there's also hope as more than half of the world's population will head to the polls this year and humanity's greatest institutions will be put to the test. There's a lot coming up this year and a lot coming up this hour. So let's get started with our panel. Indira Lakshmanan is a longtime international news reporter and editor and joins me in studio. Hi, Indira. Welcome. Hi, Nyla. Thanks for having me. From Dubai, Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Hi, Greg. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And in London, Kriti Gupta is an anchor and correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. Kriti, I think this is the last day I get to say Happy New Year. 
<laughs> Officially, I think so. Pleasure to be on. Let's start with the war in Gaza. This week, Israeli airstrikes in southern Gaza continued. These are areas that were previously declared safe zones by the Israeli military. Heavy fighting is also underway in central Gaza and the southern city of Khan Yunis. On Thursday, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said several thousand Hamas fighters remain in northern Gaza, where entire neighborhoods have been flattened to rubble. About 2.3 million people live in Gaza, a tiny blockaded strip of land on the Mediterranean that is one of the most densely populated on Earth. Since the October 7th surprise attacks by Hamas on Israel, nearly 22,600 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed. Two-thirds of those are women and children. That's according to the health ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports at least 77 journalists and media workers are part of the more than 22,000 dead. Israel says around 1,200 Israelis have been killed, most on October 7th, about half of the approximately 240 hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. Greg, Israeli defense forces are on high alert this week after a suspected Israeli strike in the Lebanese capital of Beirut that killed Hamas's number two political leader, Salah al-Aruri, on Tuesday. He'd been a target of the Israelis for years. What can you tell us about al-Aruri? He is officially, as you say, the deputy head of their Politburo, but that title doesn't really capture his influence and his role within the organization. Uh, he was also one of the founding members of the Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas. Uh, he was involved not only in building up its military capabilities in Gaza, uh, but also trying to do that in his native West Bank. And Israeli officials say that his fingerprints were on uh, a number of attacks that took place in the occupied West Bank over the past 10 years or so. He was also an important interlocutor between Hamas and Iran, between Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, he played a very important role in in increasing or, or deepening Hamas's ties with those two entities. So he was a very important military figure, and he was someone who, because of that, had been on Israel's hit list for many, many years now. What have we heard from Israel, um, Greg? about his death. We said suspected Israeli strike when we when I was introducing the conversation. Right. The Israeli government has not uh, confirmed or denied responsibility for the strike, which is usually their standard practice in these kinds of situations. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has told his ministers not to say anything at all. He's told them to keep mum. Uh, we have heard from a handful of people, Danny Danone, for example, the former Israeli ambassador to the UN, uh, who is still a member of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament from uh, Netanyahu's Likud party, uh, who put out a statement shortly after the strike on Tuesday night, uh, congratulating the army and the Israeli security services for killing Aruri. So there is no official uh, claim of responsibility nor denial here, but uh, I think quite clear to everyone what happened. Kriti, what's been the response in Gaza and the West Bank? Well, it's been, of course, a, a really tough one. And remember, it comes at the time when we are expecting a lot of people to really push for a major, major pullback in the operations from Israel to Gaza. And I think the context here is so important when we talk about not just Israel and, and Lebanon and, and Gaza as well, but of course, with the role that the United States plays in, in all of this. Because if you'll remember, a lot of the press attacks that had happened uh, around uh, Israel and, and the surrounding areas, well, a lot of them had happened uh, 
in southern Lebanon as well. So that's going to be a really big piece of the equation, something I imagine uh, uh, Anthony Blinken will be addressing when he makes his trip to the region. Right. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the region for the fourth time in three months with visits to Israel, Lebanon, and Qatar. Indira, in an address on Wednesday, Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah said that Israel should not expect the alleged assassination to go unpunished. There's been a series of skirmishes on the border between Israel and Lebanon since the October 7th attacks. Of course, the two countries have fought several wars. How does this killing further complicate that relationship? Very much it complicates it. And, you know, let's not forget that Hezbollah and Hamas are two separate groups, but they have a lot of deep links. Both of them are considered terrorist organizations by the United States. Um, Nasrallah, who, who runs um, Hezbollah, um, you know, on the one hand, he has a reputation for having a bark that's tougher than his bite. Of course, he has to say, we're not going to allow this to go unpunished because he had a close relationship with Saleh al-Aruri, the, the deputy Hamas commander, who essentially, I don't know if I want to use the word, had safe haven in Lebanon. Obviously, he was killed in this strike um, that killed a number of other Hamas and Hezbollah operatives as well. But he was allowed to operate there and operated closely with Hezbollah's support and cooperation. So I think so far since the um, war that began after the October 7th attacks by Hamas, what we've seen in Lebanon is sort of isolated strikes into Israel. Um, what Nasrallah is threatening is that if that you know they may actually take bigger actions and strike back at Israel much harder. The truth is, I'm not sure that the Lebanese government wants that. Um, they don't want to be dragged into a regional conflict. They're sure to be putting pressure on Hezbollah and Nasrallah about that. Um, the last one that you know happened more than 15 years ago now did not go well for Lebanon in the end. So I think we're really on tenter hooks about what happens there. Um, but he would ha- he had to respond in the way he did. Whether he follows up on it, we'll still see. Kriti, you mentioned Blinken's visit. He will also be in Lebanon. What is on the Secretary of State's agenda as he's going to, as I said, the fourth time in three months to the region? Yeah, he's going not only to Lebanon, but you've got Jordan, Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, Greece. He's got a full kind of regional tour there. And a lot of it is going to be appealing to, first off, the Israeli leaders, of course, in in Israel, first pull back on the offensive, but also the surrounding areas to talk about how much humanitarian aid can actually go into Gaza. And I think the one that's going to be probably the most interesting for the region is going to be Jordan, actually, because I think it's a little known fact that the a good chunk of Palestinians, I think Jordan has the most amount of Palestinians outside of Palestine that are actually living there. So when the conflict first came about, the leadership in Jordan was very vocal about and very concerned about what kind of spillover that might mean for the country of Jordan, whether or not they and some of the other kind of regional counterparts can really hold on to it. The UAE is another example, even Qatar both of which have actually been sending a lot of uh, medical resources and field hospitals to Gaza in particular. So these are all very strategic. We know that Egypt, of course, has a lot to do with the Rafa crossing and the humanitarian aid trucks that go through there. So a lot of this tour from Antony Blinken isn't just going to be about kind of keeping things isolated to the conflict and to Uh, between Israel and Gaza in particular, but also what kind of support can the other countries around them really provide? 
Right. We'll get to um, the view from Dubai. Greg, I want to hear from you on that later. Uh, But first, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel's war on Hamas and Gaza will continue for many more months, pushing back against persistent calls for a ceasefire after mounting civilian deaths, hunger and mass displacement. We are continuing to fight until the goals of the war have been achieved, especially the elimination of Hamas and the release of all our hostages. We are not relenting even for a moment in our efforts to bring our hostages back home, even at this very moment. We will ensure that Gaza no longer constitutes a threat to Israel, that there will be no element in it that finances terrorism, educates its children for terrorism, and pays the families of terrorists Greg, how much closer is Netanyahu today than he was on October 8th to achieving his goal of eliminating Hamas? I don't think he's that close, honestly. There there are two goals for this war. One of them is eliminating Hamas, removing it uh, from power and removing it as a threat to Israel. And then the other goal is securing the release of the uh, Israeli hostages who are being held in Gaza. On the first goal, speaking to Israeli officials over the past three months, No one can give you a very clear answer for what does it mean to eliminate Hamas? When will you know that that has been achieved? There's not a a shared view on what would constitute vanquishing Hamas. So you could say over the past few months that the Israeli army has done, I think, fairly significant damage to its rank and file, to its military infrastructure. Uh, On the other hand, it has not been able to capture or kill any of its leaders in Gaza. And... Uh, It has not been able to guarantee that if the war ended, Hamas would not be able to continue to exert power in Gaza. So uh, I don't think they are close yet to achieving that goal. The Associated Press estimates that about half of the approximately 240 hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th remain captive. Earlier this week, PBS NewsHour's Amna Nawaz spoke to freed hostage Avia Siegel about Netanyahu's handling of the war. Are you worried that Prime Minister Netanyahu is prioritizing winning the war over bringing the hostages home? I've got a feeling that that's why the war is continuing. He wants to win the war. But do you think he's prioritizing that over bringing hostages home? I'm not a politician, and there's things that I don't understand, but I do know that there needs to be a ceasefire for them to come out. And there isn't a ceasefire. That was former hostage Avia Siegel, who was freed by Hamas at the end of November. Her husband remains captive. So there are the voices of the hostages and their families, the voice of politicians. Indira, what is public support for this war like within Israel right now? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just over 50 um, percent. There is a really interesting poll that comes out once a month from the Israel Democracy Institute. So they have really, you know, long-term longitudinal studies on this. What I thought was interesting was that 56% in the latest survey show that continuing the military offensive is the best way to recover the hostages, while 24% thought that some swap deal, which might include releasing thousands of Palestinian prisoners, would be best. So it goes exactly to that question that was being asked of that 
former hostage of which is the better approach to get the hostages out. Interestingly, um, I think, you know, at a sort of higher level, bigger picture, only 15 percent of Israelis in this poll said that they wanted Prime Minister Netanyahu to stay in office after the war ends. As you know, he is the longest serving Israeli prime minister. Um, he's incredibly controversial. He has various corruption cases pending against him. Um, you know, he's not popular, but during the time of war, people obviously rally behind their their leader. What's interesting is that war cabinet minister Benny Gantz, who's an opposite, opposition figure, his name has come up as the leading candidate who, um, you know, most people surveyed would like to see helming the country after the war. I think, you know, what we did see in this survey was that Israelis don't want to be pressured by the United States or others into ending the war. So that's really important to them. Um, At the same time, I think that getting the hostages out is a huge priority. South Africa has launched a case at the United Nations International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza and asking the court to order Israel to halt attacks. Israel swiftly rejected the filing. Hearings are set to begin next week. Meanwhile, attacks in the Red Sea are ongoing. Since December 19th, Yemen's Houthi rebel group has conducted at least 23 attacks as a response to the war in Gaza. The Houthis are aligned with Iran. The U.S. and 12 other countries signed a warning to the Houthis this week. The U.S. also asked the U.N. Security Council to take action against the rebels. Greg, these attacks are on vessels the Houthis claim are linked to Israel or travel to Israeli ports. What are these attacks looking like? That's the claim, but that is not really what's happening in practice. It has been mayhem in the Red Sea for the past two months or so. The Houthis have uh, fired missiles and drones at commercial vessels. They have boarded or attempted to board uh, cargo ships using helicopters and boats. In one case, they were successfully able to board and seize a ship uh, by helicopter. Uh, The Pentagon said yesterday that they used a a kamikaze naval drone, an unmanned boat that exploded in the Red Sea. So they have pulled out a really remarkable arsenal and, and thrown it at commercial shipping. Uh, They say they're targeting ships with links to Israel, either ships that are calling at Israeli ports that are owned or partially owned by Israeli companies. Uh, That hasn't really been the case. Many of these attacks have been random. They have been on ships that seemingly have no connection whatsoever to Israel. And so as a result of that, you have the biggest shipping companies in the world now uh, avoiding the Red Sea and avoiding that area. UK Foreign Secretary and former Prime Minister David Cameron spoke to reporters about the Red Sea attacks. It's quite clear to me this is unacceptable. This is illegal. It's not to do with Gaza. It's not to do with Israel. This is about the freedom of navigation. This is about the ability of ships to carry their cargo. The world economy, every economy, will suffer if ships keep coming under attack in this illegal and unacceptable way. And these attacks need to stop or actions will be taken. Cameron says the U.K. will take direct action if the attacks continue following the lead of the U.S., which has shot down Houthi missiles in the Red Sea and sank three small boats. Kriti, what effect are these attacks having on trade and oil transport in the Red Sea and then broader across the broader economy? Well, the initial read-through into the oil sector is, is is the biggest one in that the Red Sea in particular transports a lot of the oil revenues, of course, and 
for that reason, a lot of that has to has to be rerouted. And when it comes to commercial ships in particular, that's where you're seeing the rerouting become uh, more intense. So, for example, instead of going through the Red Sea and then through the Mediterranean, you basically have to now go completely around the coast of Africa and around the Cape of Good Hope. What that does is increase voyage times by about 40%. It means more fuel, more labor, um, and, and of course, then the added time as well to finally get those goods. What has changed, though, is that a lot of the increased costs associated with that haven't yet translated to the consumer. And I think that's why a lot of people are really hoping that this becomes a very temporary issue because the more sustained it becomes, we have this kind of extending into months or even years, then it will actually hit pockets. You're going to start to see oil prices hit go much, much higher, whereas right now you are seeing small spikes in the oil price, but only for it to come back down as you see a lot of these major oil tankers and shipping container lines, for example, kind of go back and forth between how they're going to address it. And a lot of the kind of post-COVID dynamic actually means there's so much excess shipping capacity that a lot of these major players are actually able to pivot faster than maybe they would have a couple of years ago. Indira, the Houthis are financially backed by Iran. What has Iran said about this international pressure? Iran and the Houthis have basically brushed off the international pressure. The security chief in Iran praised the brave actions of the Houthi rebels um, and have basically made it clear that they support the Houthis as a show of support um, for Palestinians in Gaza, even though, as Greg said, there doesn't actually seem to be a link between these attacks and Israeli-linked ships as the Houthis have claimed. I mean, for example, a commercial ship belonging to the Maersk Shipping Company was one of the latest attacks, um, and some shipping companies are abandoning the Red Sea route altogether. This is really significant for the economic reasons that Krithi has laid out, because the Red Sea connects to the Suez Canal, which is this major shipping route we all know that's used for 12% of global trade. We've seen um, you know, 2%, 3% increases week on week um, on oil. As she said, it hasn't translated into the pump yet, but it certainly could. Um, what I think is interesting is that despite um, David Cameron and the defense secretary in Britain saying we could take direct action. And it's not clear, by the way, that the government would need to actually seek parliamentary approval for strikes on the Houthis um, in the Red Sea. Um, despite those warnings, um, Iran and the Houthis have remained defiant in the face of those warnings. Let me pose this question to all three of you. Greg, let me start with you. Before the end of last year, there was a lot of discussion about fears of the Israel-Hamas conflict spilling out into the wider region. Greg, are we there now? We are. I mean, you could say we've been there for several months now. Uh, this, The day after October 7th had already become not just an Israeli-Palestinian conflict in Gaza, but also an Israeli-Lebanese conflict on Israel's northern border. Uh, not long after that, you had militias in Syria and Iraq that started targeting American military positions there. Uh, the Houthis got involved before they were targeting ships in the Red Sea. They were firing cruise missiles and drones at southern Israel. So this has been for a while now a regional conflict, not something that was just contained to the Israelis and the Palestinians. The, the concern, I think, when people talk about this being a regional war, what they mean is 
escalating much further. So we go beyond the sort of tit-for-tat bombardment that we've seen between Israel and Lebanon uh, to something more like that devastating war in 2006. Uh, We see direct American or coalition strikes on the Houthis in Yemen that might then uh, cause the Houthis to lash out at neighboring countries, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, the countries that have been fighting the Houthis for the better part of nine years now. So that's the concern. I think right now there has been this regional escalation, but it has stayed relatively contained and there are sort of guardrails around it. And the concern is that those guardrails break and this turns into a, a much broader regional conflict. Yeah, I totally agree with Greg. Um, And, you know, there have been all sorts of things happening. To elaborate a bit on what he said, there have been um, so many strikes um, in Iraq on U.S. forces since the Israeli attack, um, you know, response to the retaliation and and their attacks in in Gaza. And what we've seen is that now, just, um, just this week, the U.S. military launched a retaliatory strike in Baghdad just yesterday, on Thursday, that killed a militia leader who it blames for recent attacks on U.S. personnel. That was That's a man... That's the Iran-backed militia, correct? Exa- yeah. This is, this is um, Harakat al-Nukaba um, that was involved in um, planning and carrying out attacks against um, American personnel in Iraq. And remember, the United States, although the U.S. war in Iraq is over, the U.S. still has 2,500 troops in Iraq, 900 in neighboring Syria, and the focus is on preventing a resurgent a resurgence of Islamic State. Um, but you know what we what we saw was the U.S. firing um, at least two rockets to the headquarters of this Nukaba militia group, um, killing this leader. Uh, you know, as I also want to point out that Hamas, remember, is kind of a noted operation. They're not just in Gaza. They also have people operating in Lebanon, in Turkey, and Qatar. And so suddenly all of those people become potential targets in all these different countries. Turkey has taken a strong stand saying, don't think about coming in here and assassinating anybody. But it's possible, and, and Qatar hasn't announced any changes in the Hamas office there, but the fact is that any Hamas leader anywhere in the world is now a potential target. Target, and that could draw in a lot of other countries. As Greg said, nobody wants a repeat of uh, the Lebanon-Israel war from 2006, but you can definitely see how this is affecting, you know, every country in the region. Let's turn now to Iran. On Wednesday, almost 100 people were killed and more than 200 injured by a bomb attack. Two blasts were set off at a ceremony marking the fourth anniversary of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani's death. Soleimani was killed by a U.S. drone strike in 2020. On Thursday, the Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack. The group said two members detonated explosive belts while in the crowd. Kriti, can you just start by explaining why the Islamic State is attacking people in Iran? Well, there are, of course, a lot of different counterforces here when we talk about uh, the different places that are then involved with Iran. Remember, some of this is going to be fundamental from a religious point of view as well. The Islamic State and Iran are on the opposite sides, basically, of of the Islamic kind of realm, um, the 
is Islamic State is more Sunni versus Iran is is more Shia based as well. So there is that intri- intricate um, or should I say implicit uh, kind of bias uh, between the two. Um, I imagine Greg is probably the better expert on this one. Yes, I was going to ask Greg as a follow-up. Be... Greg, what has the Islamic State said about their involvement in this? They they haven't said, uh, I think, the, the most interesting thing, the thing that everybody would be curious about, which is which of their affiliates was responsible uh, for this attack. They have splintered, obviously, into uh, a number of different geographically dispersed affiliates, and, and they didn't say in the statement that they put out claiming responsibility, they didn't say which one was responsible. Uh, the expectation, the, the sense amongst people that I've spoken to is that it was probably their uh, branch in Afghanistan, which calls itself the uh, Khorasan province branch, uh, which is a particularly vicious sectarian uh, branch, even by Islamic State standards. And I think not surprising that they would have carried out an attack like this. They have carried out similar attacks on Iran in the past. They have uh, these deep theological and also political differences with the Iranian government. And so uh, I think from the first moments after this this explosion this week, uh, I think the, the expectation was that it was going to be linked to Islamic State, and, and that turned out to be the case. And Greg, are those disagreements why this uh, attack was at an anniversary ceremony for General Soleimani's death? What's the significance there? Well, I mean, first, it's it's a convenient target. Uh, first, it's a, it's a gathering of large numbers of people and not in Tehran, not in the comparatively better guarded capital, but uh, outside of the capital. And then, yes, I mean, Qasem Soleimani, uh, the head of the Quds Force, which was the which is the external operations wing of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard in Iran, uh, was deeply involved in fighting against Islamic State in Iraq and elsewhere. Uh, all of these uh, pro-Iranian Shia militias in Iraq that uh, banded together in this sort of very uneasy uh, alliance, if you will, with the American-led coalition fighting against Islamic State in Iraq, uh, Qasem Soleimani had a hand in that. So. That would obviously, for Islamic State, make a commemoration of his assassination a, a attractive target. Greg, um, just wondering, um, just before we go to the break here, as we think about what we were just talking about with the Israel-Hamas war, um, what does that have any further complications to what we're talking about here in Iran, in the Islamic State? Not directly, not directly, but I, I think there's an indirect connection there. You know, there were some people speculating after the explosion in Iran this week that Israel might have had a hand in it. And that was completely baseless speculation. This isn't Israel's MO. They've carried out attacks in Iran before, but they have been targeted attacks on nuclear scientists and the like. Uh, But I think that being said, this will feed for the Iranian regime a sense of unease, a sense of nervousness. Uh, They've had an attack on their soil. They've had several of their commanders and allies assassinated by both America and Israel over the past week, uh, that is going to factor into their decision-making and, and how they approach things in the region as we go forward. Let's go to Japan. A 7.6 magnitude earthquake hit the country on New Year's Day and triggered tsunami warnings. Days later, more than 30,000 people remained in shelters. Rescue teams struggled in freezing temperatures to reach coastal areas to save people trapped under thousands of destroyed homes. In Suzu, a town near the earthquake's epicenter, 90% of the houses may be destroyed. That's according to the town's mayor. The quake killed at least 82 people. More than 240 are missing. Indira, 
Japan is in the so-called ring of fire with regular earthquake activity. What can you tell us about Japan's preparations, disaster preparations for these type of events and how that is part of the culture of Japan. Right. You make a really good point, Nyla, that because it's located on the massive Pacific plate in this so-called Pacific Ring of Fire, it's one of the most seismically active places on Earth. They do get a lot of earthquakes. But what I thought was striking about this is the fact given how incredibly bad um, and strong, and strong that, mm-hmm. this earthquake was, the relatively low number of casualties, fewer than 100 people confirmed dead at this point, despite all the destruction. And this goes very strongly to Japan's culture of preparedness, following the rules. Um, they basically have comparatively low earthquake casualties given the magnitude of their quakes. So one example is that um, they have integrated earthquake preparedness Preparedness into everyday culture. Children in Japan um, have earthquake drills in the same way that schools in the United States have fire or even active shooter drills. The buildings are, you know, made in a certain way so that they will withstand earthquakes and, you know, sort of bounce, so to speak, rather than collapsing. Um, That's over the last 60 or so years. Um, Japan has built foundations that sway with vibrations instead of snapping. So earthquake experts say that Japan has a sort of two-pronged approach. On the one hand, it's top-down, meaning that initiatives come from the government before, during, and after a disaster. And so that's drills, training, exit signs buildings, all of that in earthquake warning systems. At the same time, there's this bottom-up approach where people who live in Japan are trained and it's part of the culture to prepare for an earthquake and to know how to react. And I just want to say this is very, very different from the earthquake in Japan that listeners may remember in 2011, which was a much higher magnitude um, that killed 20,000 people, you know, in part because there was a terrible tsunami that came out of it that hit um, a nuclear plant and caused all sorts Mm -hmm. of problems. Um, This is, they're not expecting a tsunami in this case, um, you know, of that kind of magnitude. But I think the Japanese preparedness and following rules culture actually links in to another major disaster that Japan averted what could have been even worse than it was. Right. And that was this week, right. Um, On Tuesday, a Japan Airlines passenger jet and Japanese Coast Guard plane collided on an airport runway in Tokyo. The Coast Guard plane was actually headed for the earthquake zone. I could only see the fire in the engine. After we calmly got off the plane, I saw that the fire had spread in about 10, 15 minutes. That's one of the plane crash survivors speaking to Channel News Asia. The crash killed five of the six people on board the Coast Guard plane, But all 379 people on the Airbus survived. That's 367 passengers and 12 crew members. Kriti, the fact that all of these people survived is remarkable. Many are applauding Japan Airlines staff for how quickly they ushered passengers to safety. What else do we know about how all of these lives were saved so quickly? Well, at its core, it does come down to that follow the rule 
culture that Indira was just talking about. But it's also, I think, important to put this into some context about just what was at stake here. Uh, there's a rule on airplanes around the world that, and airplane crew, I should say, that they have to be able to execute an emergency exit with about 50% of the emergency exits that are available. So for example, this plane in particular had eight emergency exits. The normal rule would have been able that these staff were trained to operate within four emergency exits. Well, when the plane started uh, taking or was uh, hit by the fire or hit by the, the the Coast Guard plane, they only had three emergency exits to operate off of. And a lot of people are saying that this in any other country or any other culture probably would not have yielded such positive results and that 379 passengers and crew were saved, to your point. Um, so we do know that in terms of how the actual um, safety measures were executed. In terms of the actual Coast Guard aircraft, it looks like the Japan Chan Minister of uh, Transport has actually released the fact that the Coast Guard aircraft involved in that collision, the one that was headed for the earthquake zone and that sadly lost uh, five of their member crew members, the pilot was the only one who had survived, was actually not cleared for takeoff. That is according to Japanese authorities, although you are seeing some of the uh, comments from the actual pilot that did survive say that he did actually believe that they uh, were cleared for takeoff. So we are still waiting for a full analysis of what actually happened, but that's what we know so far. Right, and I would say, of course, we know that... um Plane crashes are very rare, but the most important thing I took away from this, which I think everyone listening should remember, is that when they give you an emergency order to leave an aircraft, you should not take your bags. You should just go. And they think that's part of the reason why so many people survived. Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed on Monday to intensify attacks in Ukraine after an airstrike in the Russian city of Belgorod left 24 Russian civilians dead. Russia responded with a barrage of missile and drone strikes on the Ukrainian cities of Kyiv and Kharkiv, Ukraine's two largest cities. The attacks left at least five people dead, dozens more injured. Russia's ambassador to the U.N. says Ukraine's attack on Belgorod was, quote, a deliberate, indiscriminate attack against a civilian a target. Indira, what do we know about this attack? Well, I mean, the irony of Russia saying that is that last Saturday's attack on Belgorod came within 24 hours of Russia's biggest aerial bombardment of Ukraine so far. So Russia had launched 500 missiles and drones against Ukraine in just five days. Uh, Ukraine retaliated. As you said, a couple dozen um, Russians were killed. More than 100 others were hurt in the biggest Russian city that is close to the Ukrainian border. What I thought was really striking, um, and, you know, uh, by the way, you know, these 25 people who were killed came the day after Russia bombarded Ukraine and killed more than 40 people there. So Belgorod is a Russian city of 340,000 that's just an hour from the border. Um, prior to the war, it had very strong ties with the Ukrainian city on on the other side, Kharkiv. Um, what I thought was striking about this is in the aftermath of the attack, the citizens of Belgorod were largely criticizing their own government, um, saying, why do we not have more protection here? Why do we not have bomb shelters? Apparently, a year and a half ago, a multi-story housing block was hit. Everyone was looking for basements. There was nothing available. People are complaining, saying, we don't have bomb shelters, or maybe they exist, but nobody knows where they are. And instead of the government last year um, telling Russians where to get to these bomb shelters, they distributed a video saying, how should you behave in the event of an air raid? Stay away from windows, move to the ground floor. So there basically have been issues with Belgorod's shelters and people in that city are very unhappy about this. Mm. 
Amid the intensified fighting between the two countries this week, Russia and Ukraine carried out the largest prisoner swap since the beginning of the war almost two years ago. Russia said it received 248 prisoners of war, while Ukraine received 230 in an exchange that was mediated by the United Arab Emirates. The UAE's Ministry of Foreign Affairs says the deal was made possible by its good relationship with both countries. Craig, how has the UAE's growing economic relationship with Russia, how did that make this prisoner exchange possible? If you talk to officials in the UAE, they will tell you this is exactly why they've stayed neutral in the war so that they can play mediator like this. I think that's an ex post facto justification for staying neutral. They had other reasons for doing that, but they did. Uh, They did not side with the West in Well, commercial reasons. A lot of them are commercial. I mean, the biggest one is oil. Uh, Both the UAE and Saudi Arabia, of course, big members of OPEC, big oil exporters. Russia is the other key player in the so-called OPEC plus cartel. And so that gives the Saudis and the Emiratis a reason to stay on good terms with the Russians so that they can continue to coordinate on oil policy uh, rather than working at cross purposes and potentially crashing the oil price as they did a few years ago. So They have found a way to stay on good terms. The UAE has stayed neutral. Uh, It's found some commercial gain in staying neutral. There is Russian oil that comes through the UAE that is then re-exported, and it's no longer Russian oil at that point. Uh, There are firms in the UAE that are selling electronics and other goods to Russia uh, that are prohibited by sanctions, but they are giving Russian firms a, a way to import those products. So That's been beneficial economically for the UAE, but also beneficial for the Russians. And that gives the government in Abu Dhabi uh, some credit that it can use with Vladimir Putin. Do we expect that we will see the UAE continue to play a role in mediating future conflicts between Russia and the West? Or was this maybe a one-time thing? It would like to play that role, partly because it is always competing with Qatar, its neighbor in the Gulf, which has established itself for many, many years now as a mediator in all sorts of conflicts uh, around the world. It was a mediator, for example, between uh, the U.S. and the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, but I think also in the particular case of, of anything to do with Russia, the UAE has come in for a lot of criticism, uh, certainly in Washington and other Western capitals for its neutrality on the war, for its not just neutrality, but uh, helping the Russians in many cases uh, evade and and break sanctions on oil exports and, and other goods. And so whenever they get an opportunity to show that that relationship can do something that is perhaps beneficial for Ukraine or beneficial for the West, they're going to take that opportunity and, and use that to their diplomatic advantage in, in Washington and elsewhere in the West. Let's end on some royal family intrigue. Europe's longest reigning monarch, Queen Marguerite, rode through Denmark's capital Copenhagen on Thursday in a gilded horse-drawn coach. In her final public appearance as a monarch, she announced her abdication in a surprise New Year's address. I have decided that now is the right time. On 14 January 2024, 52 years after I succeeded my beloved father, I will step down as Queen of Denmark. I leave the throne to my son, Crown Prince Frederick. As we noted, the 83-year-old is Europe's longest reigning monarch. Indira, this is the first abdication by a monarch in 900 years. What reason did she give? 
well, she gave the reason that she's 83 years old, that a job like Queen or any job takes a toll, that she recently had back surgery. I thought it was interesting that People magazine um, reported the suspicions of those who follow the royals in Denmark and, you know, sort of royal watchers who suspected that maybe she was stepping down in an effort to save the marriage of her son, Crown Prince Frederick, um, because there was a report a few months ago in November that the Crown Prince was allegedly having an affair with a Mexican-born socialite who he was photographed with during a trip to Spain. Um, That woman hotly denied the allegations, said there was nothing to them. She's a Picasso expert who was showing him around when a friend of his got sick. Um, But you're right that Queen Margaret is the first Danish monarch to step down in over 500 years, and she previously had hinted she was going to reign for life, just like her third cousin Elizabeth, who reigned for more than 70 years. So it is interesting. I know they want to keep Queen Mary, who was an Australian-born wife of uh, Prince Frederick, um, in the family. So who knows whether it's idle speculation or, you know, in an effort to save her son's marriage or if indeed she was tired and felt it was time to hand it over to a next generation. What I think is interesting is when she ascended to the throne in 1972, only 42% of Danes supported the monarchy and the latest survey shows that 84% of Danes now favor it to some or to a high degree. Right. Those are numbers elected politicians <laughs> could only <laughs> dream of for, at least yes. in this country. Um, Krithi, really quickly, can I just ask you the view from London about Princess Mary and how news of her job title is being received, the Australian-born queen? It's being received pretty well. I mean, even if you look at some of the Australian media, they're thrilled to have an Australian-born queen, at least in Europe. Uh, One of the big pieces of this whole conversation is what kind of kind of uh, developments she's going to add to the monarchy. Her predecessor, uh, the queen, of course, it says had slimmed down the number of royals, restructured palace finances, was probably added to that increased approval rate. So we'll, of course, see if uh, Princess Mary will do the same. My thanks go to Kriti Gupta, anchor and correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio in London, Greg Karlstrom, Middle East correspondent for The Economist in Dubai, and Indira Lakshmanan, longtime international news reporter and editor. Thanks to you all. My Kid is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boudou of Axios. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR.
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.